Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. It's time for another State of the Vote episode. Once per week, we're going to update you on the national political map as voters around the country cast their ballots. This election is unlike any other in history because of the record number of ballots that are being cast by mail. So although we're conditioned to think that Election Day is a one-time event, people are voting right now. Joining me today is Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. Mike, thanks for being on again. I know uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Well, I hope so. I hope to live up to that standard, but thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So voting is well underway. Mail-in ballots have started going out to voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan this week. And last week we talked about North Carolina. So why don't we just dig in here? What are the trends we're seeing on the national map that voters should be watching? Well, we just got a fresh round of polling today, which is showing a couple of really interesting things, or at least I think they're interesting. And that is that for the first time, what we're seeing is actually the national polling averages actually tighten up a little bit. At the same time, the battleground states are are widening for Joe Biden. So normally it's the opposite. And again, what I sub- subscribe this to is this natural stratification that we've been talking about on the podcast for the last few months. Um, and that is really uh, very much in line with the historical range of what the 2020 election has been. And when I say the historical range of the 2020 election, it's important to separate that from what every other election in modern history has been like, because voters are pretty locked in. There's not a whole lot of movement. So when we see a little bit of national movement, um, it's it's interesting. And when I mean a little bit, I mean a little bit. I mean, we're talking like one or two point change in the average and to see that consummate uh, or consequence change in the battleground uh, states in the opposite direction, it, it's probably more interesting to you know nerds like me than it is to real people. It, it doesn't mean much more than we are si- we are seeing the cement dry even further, and you're seeing states like Arizona um, widen up for Biden. They're they're getting wider, um, which again we believe is really a, a function of the demographics that that you know we've been talking about on the podcast and this this new Southern strategy that we've been discussing. Um, Biden is opening up a lead with college-educated voters. He may be the first uh, Democrat in the history of polling to actually win white college-educated voters, which is a, a really fascinating development. Do you think that this marginal tightening that we're seeing, how much does that have to do with likely voter screens, uh, You know, pollsters switching yeah. the way they identify voters as you know, registered voters versus likely voters? So that's a really important question, and I guess we probably owe it to people to dig into the weeds a little bit. I've always been a little bit um, hesitant to do that because it's a complex practice, and sometimes you can lose people and leave them more confused and more worried than you than just by saying, okay, let's just focus on the average and focus on the volatility. But but let's get into these methodologies a little bit. Um, and what what you're looking for when you're polling is a couple of things, especially when it's when you're talking about registered voters and likely voters. Registered voters, of, co- of course, is what we would call a much looser screen, meaning a much wider universe of people who are simply registered. Uh, a likely voter is somebody who meets a certain set of criteria, depending on the pollster who constructs the poll, 
of what they are looking for in terms of people who actually have a habit or tendency to vote. Oftentimes, it's as simple as a three, what we call a, the famous three of four voter, which is has voted in the last three of the last four elections, because that will likely demonstrate that they're going to actually show up. In an election like 2020, a conventional wisdom, and and I think a lot of science would suggest that you want a much looser screen because the turnout is probably going to be historically high. And lower information voters or people who have less of a propensity or likelihood to show up are probably going to show up in this, this presidential election year. Presidential general elections have the highest turnouts Um, as opposed to, for example, midterm elections or midterm primaries, which tend to be the lowest turnout elections. So what you're really looking for in the polling is the weighting, as we call it, is how much weight, uh, how how much uh, lean do you put onto these lower propensity voters actually showing up? And the weighting is the hardest part, not to, not to uh, bring in a Tom Petty song into this, but the waiting is the hardest part, <laughs> right? Because you have to, the skill as a pollster is to actually determine who's going to show up and in what numbers and what percentage of the overall electorate are, is each demographic going to constitute. And while there's a lot of history and science to that, there is a little bit of art form uh, based on that, which is always the subject of much speculation and frankly, criticism, because other pollsters kind of look at each other and make them justify and argue why they would put that kind of weighting on there. And what this process does, of it's almost a peer review process, what it does is it, it kind of forces a um, like almost a Wikipedia type of, of, of discussion that ultimately gets you to some sort of truthiness in there. And that's where we look at averages as opposed to take any one poll into strong consideration. All right. So, Mike, before we dig into the states, and I want to go state by state a little bit, especially since Pennsylvania in particular is important. Before we do that, since this election is going to rely heavily on mail-in ballots, which we've talked about before, I want to ask you to respond to Trump's continued attacks on voting by mail. Well, we have to keep in mind that this is part of a concerted strategy, okay? It is not coincidental, and it's just not top of mind. It's not angry rage tweeting in the middle of the night. This has been consistent. He has uh, continued to undermine uh, ballots and balloting in various ways, uh, beginning in 2016 when he lost by a historic margin in the popular vote uh, by claiming voter fraud. We can speculate as to you know the the, the narcissistic elements or you know the, the 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 pejorative elements of why he does that, but the truth of the matter is it's, it's become clear that when you do this over a series of years. And especially as it ramps up, as it gets closer to the election, that he is doing this in a concerted fashion to undermine confidence in the outcome of the election, regardless of how it comes out. He will say that there was fraud and fraud occurred, and that is why uh, you know, he either – if he wins, he'll say, I should have won by more, uh, but for fraud. And if he um, loses, he'll say, well, of course I lost because they stole the election. And that's again, that's that's very disturbing and very concert, uh, you know, concerning. But I think it's really important that we just really focus on the fact that this is this is a setup to chaos. This is a setup to undermining confidence in the outcome. And I believe it's it's part of part and parcel of this authoritarian tendency to remove some of the basic elements of our democratic institutions, of which the primary one is the basic institution of voting. Yeah. 
than the peaceful transfer of power that follows from a legitimate election. That's exactly right. That's what yeah. this is about. Is look, uh, and I, I, you know, I say this with 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 pause at this point, and a lot of caveats. Okay, there's a long time to go. There haven't been any debates yet, although I don't think ba- the debates will be terribly consequential in moving public opinion. There's the whole month of October, which we're familiar with October surprise concepts. But in a race that is this stratified, that is this historically partisanized, where the data is consistently not moving um, and has not for many, many months, the math, the simple math gives Joe Biden an advantage at this point. It just does. We can debate how much, we can debate where, but there is a greater likelihood that Joe Biden will win the presidency. The question then becomes, does anybody really believe that Donald Trump's just going to be a gracious loser? And the answer is no. No. I mean, he's just not. And so what will he employ to get the race as close as possible to to then undermine Americans' confidence in the system more than he already has? We are already seeing a record number of Americans believe that the outcome will be questionable already, frankly, on both sides of the aisle. And so the more that he can cast doubt and have Americans lose confidence, he thrives in that chaos. There are certain personality types and certain types of leaders that look for chaos and look for that disjointedness in their society to provide an anchor, especially with a minority, um, which is his base and always has been, to, to continue to hold power. And I, look, I, I think at this point in the in in the life cycle of the Trump presidency, what I'm saying is not out of the mainstream. Uh, I, I, it, that is just how he governs. It is how he practices a governance, and it's very dangerous. It's uh, uh, it's very pernicious, and I think that we need to be very mindful that this is all part of a strategy. The only way to prevent this kind of devolvement into civil unrest and calls for violence, which he's basically already begun to insinuate that he ha- has already done it in places like Michigan and saying, liberate these states, right? You know, compelling militiamen, armed militiamen to, to take over state capitals is, is to win with such overwhelming numbers that there's no legitimate or credible claim with moderate and marginal Republicans to rally behind the president, that's, that's the only way to really mitigate what is likely to be developing. Okay, let's dig into some of the states now. I want to take some time first to focus on Pennsylvania. So maybe you can start by talking about some of the trends that we're seeing. And then especially, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the, you know, swing voters. And I put that in air quotes in Pennsylvania in particular. Um, so why don't you talk about the trends at large in Pennsylvania, why they matter, and then a bit about whether we should expect to see a lot of swing voters, as we've referred to them in Pennsylvania in 2020 and beyond. Okay, so let's go with the Keystone State. Pennsylvania has 20 electoral votes, and it's a very important uh, um, state, mainly because of its size. It's second only to Florida in the battleground states that exist, depending on on how much weight you put on the Texas equation, but let's set that aside for a moment. 20 electoral votes is very considerable. And and Pennsylvania, up until 2016, had been a reliable part of what the Democrats considered their blue wall in the Rust Belt states, uh, going back to 1988. 1988 was the last time George Herbert Walker Bush uh, beats Michael Dukakis um, 
in Pennsylvania, loses it in 1992 to Bill Clinton, and begins a uh, multi-year trajectory, Pennsylvania does, in moving more and more towards the Democratic column. Um, Something happens, though, on the way to this permanent blue state, and it was not dissimilar to the trends that we have been talking about at the Lincoln Project, which we follow very closely, and also mirror the trajectory of other Rust Belt states. And let me speak about that a little bit, because even though there are political lines, the demographic of uh, the the, the core constituency of the Republican Party really has not changed. Change that much. In fact, it's become more monolithic. And I'm talking, of course, about primarily non-college-educated blue-collar workers. Uh, these are the folks that um, historically have made up a, a significant number of you know union voters. Um, and they, up until uh, well, I shouldn't say that. We have seen a, a small rightward lurch with these voters for some time. It's why Ohio is becoming basically a safe. Republican state, where um, four or six uh, cycles ago, it was very much a bellwether state and could bounce one way or the other. It's why you saw Iowa even moved sharply towards Trump in the in the 2016 election. It's why Wisconsin moved in that direction. It's why Michigan and Minnesota um, posted the the results that they did uh, in 2016. There has been a lot of lot of hand wringing and a lot of you know pencil sharpening over whether or not these what were called Obama to Trump voters. Uh, are actually swing voters or not. And most prognosticators have been looking at these folks and saying, you know, if you voted for Barack Obama twice and then you voted for Trump, well, clearly you're a swing voter. Um, I'm going to say something a little controversial, and and that is I I don't think they're a swing voter at all. And most people, I I think, might disagree with me, and that's okay. We, We do things a little bit different at the Lincoln Project. But the trend line tells me that these are voters that are realigning. They're moving towards the Republican Party and have been, not just in 16, but have been over the past four cycles or so for a reason, and that is they are increasingly motivated by the underlying issues that Donald Trump has brought to bear. And to characterize these as swing voters, I think, is a mistake. And there's a lot of research that is being done um, and has been recorded on why these swing voters are staying in the Trump column even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, the economy's crashed, it's particularly hard hit in the Rust Belt states, we're seeing racial strife, the president's approval rating numbers are down. And my answer to that is maybe it's not a swing voter, folks. Right. I mean, because if if these were swing voters, you can't really think of a different set of circumstances or a more or a more moving set of circumstances that would swing them back into the Democratic column than what we have right now. And since they're not moving, that indicates that maybe they're not swing voters after all. Is that what you're saying? That's 100% what I'm saying. And I think that's exactly right. Now, we'll we'll see if the theory holds true, but I think that there has been an overemphasis um, amongst everybody from researchers and pollsters to, to pundits saying, how do we get these Obama you know, people back? Obama Trump voters, Obama Trump voters, they're swing voters, right? It's it's very baked in conventional wisdom, but but I think what you're saying is we're overlooking the 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 circumstances that that we're in right now where they are not moving back. Yeah, and moreover, yeah, that's exactly right. And moreover, they have actually been moving in a more slight rightward direction for the past few election cycles. And so to me, that's a trend. That's not just this anomaly, and we've been treating it like it is, and I don't think it is, and Pennsylvania is very much ground zero for this type of voter behavior, especially in what we call the T in Pennsylvania. 
Let me explain what that is a little bit. If you look at Pennsylvania, it's kind of like a rectangle. And if the the southwestern quadrant uh, is kind of home to Pittsburgh, the southeastern uh, quadrant is home to uh, Philadelphia. And there tend to be more bluer voters, a lot more minority voters. And then there's also the surrounding counties, which are suburban. And they're not only in these areas, but they're, the numbers are particularly pronounced in these areas. Uh, around Philadelphia, they're what we call the collared counties. And th- th- there's four collared counties um, in, in Pennsylvania. And they are really largely determinative on what um, what uh, the, the vote totals have been for Republicans uh, and, and Democrats. But the, these suburban voters have generally been the swing voters. But if you take these lower right and lower left quadrants geographically and you kind of set them aside, you end up with, with something that looks loosely like a T. And that T is the rural uh, deep red counties where Donald Trump significantly overperformed. Uh, shockingly so, right? These were the numbers that kind of shocked everyone. It was like, whoa, Hillary Clinton should have been up by two points. Trump is actually up by two points. That's a four-point swing. What the heck is going on here? And what we saw was a couple of things. One, uh, there was a, uh, a a very strong coalescing of that non-college-educated blue-collar worker. There was a movement of conservative Democrats that made the same, same demographic criteria that moved towards Trump pretty significantly. And perhaps most importantly, there was what we would consider an underweighting in the polls, meaning their pollsters were not accounting uh, 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 for a higher a turnout and intensity level amongst these voters, and they showed up in a slightly disproportionate number, just one or two percent, than the polls were suggesting. And that's important to understand because you hear this term that the shy Trump voters, right? Or the polls were wrong. I don't think there's a shy Trump voter at all. There's no evidence for that. The polling simply underweighted the turnout at which level they would show up at. doesn't mean they were shy about it. It means that the math was wrong. And that's the importance of waiting in a poll. And it's why there's these heated disagreements on what percentage they're going to make up. Bottom line is, I don't believe that there's a shy voter. I believe that there is an intensity around Trump's candidacy with these voters in this area of the state. And like I said, I don't think it's a one-off. I think it's been a long-term trend that is just materializing in a way that is changing or realigning certain parts of the country. And Pennsylvania is a big part of that. So while we're digging into Pennsylvania here, can you talk about the factors, if we have any data on this, that suburban college-educated Pennsylvanians, which is sort of the other side of this coin, right, are considering as they begin voting. Because we know that small businesses are down 14.5% since January. We know that travel and tourism offices are down 21% since this time last year in 2019. We know restaurants are down 7% uh, since this time in 2019. Um you know what are what are what is this cohort of Pennsylvania voters considering, um, and how important is COVID? I know we talk all the time about how COVID is the one thing that is moving voters, especially this segment of voters. Can, can you talk about that? Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up those statistics because by any standard historical measure, you would see support levels for an incumbent just falling through the floor. Right, right. But we're not seeing that at all. And part of the answer to your question is why, Mike? Why is yeah. that happening? Right. right. And the reason, let me start with the reason why that's happening, because it helps to explain more about the suburban part of your question. The the reason why um, that that voters are not moving, and again, these areas of the country are amongst the hardest hit in all the areas that you're talking about, small business closures, unemployment numbers, the closing of factories, uh, the travel industry has just been, you know, um, smacked. 
Um, but the support levels remain relatively um, consistent. They're, they're remarkably um, strong for, for Trump. And the answer, uh, I believe, and there's a huge body of research showing this, is this same demographic group is really um, more coalesced by identity issues than they are by economic issues. And the answer to your question is that these voters are not voting uh, purely and not even primarily out of economic concerns. They're, they're, they're feeling something far more existential. They're feeling the decline of themselves and the community, their own demographic, um, and their status in America and American life. Now, the economic part is a very important piece because the loss of economic hope and economic opportunity exacerbates this identity tension. And in fact, it becomes a part of the sort of the virtue of what is going on. They're suffering together. This decline becomes a feature of the, organ- of, of the, of the organism, right, or of the community or of the tribe, and it becomes, it, it becomes internalized. And and when you have somebody that rises as a politician and says, this is not your fault. This is the fault of the Mexicans uh, who are taking your jobs, the, of the Chinese who are attacking us with a silent killer with the virus, of, of Muslims who are trying to take over your churches and bring uh, other ideas of like Sharia law into, <laughs> into our schools, into our government. I laugh a little bit, and I, I shouldn't because disrespectfully – there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear that is closely correlates to with to declinism, and that is what Trumpism is. It's much more about people finding a community and an identity at a time of incredible loss and declinism. Now, this is very distinct. I know you, you got some questions, but one real other quick point here. This is in sharp contrast to people who have college educations and a lot more economic um, opportunity and have a much more aspirational view of themselves in America and in America generally. In other words, they still believe that America is a hopeful place. And even though economic times have gotten difficult, and I don't just mean during COVID, but I mean over the course of the past 10 or 15 years, their college degrees afford them um, better opportunities for their kids, better opportunities for themselves, um, greater job uh, potential to, 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 to climb the ladder economically. And that provides them a, a markedly greater sense of hope. And when we look at polling, there's a direct correlation between people who answer the question of whether they believe that the future will be better for their children than for themselves, oftentimes are centrists, very much centrists, or or Democrats. And those that believe that the future will be worse for their children are, increas- are increasingly Republicans. And it's very correlates to the way you view yourself in construct, your own American identity, if you will. And those are trumping those trumping. They are trumping those those economic concerns as primary drivers. Because when we used to look back historically, even people who are not doing well economically overwhelmingly believed that in America you could make it through hard work and playing by the rules, you could get ahead. You could climb into the middle class or the upper middle class. You could maybe buy a boat and send your kids to college and retire comfortably. And a lot of Americans, especially white, non-college-educated Americans, do not feel that at all anymore. And so that's the separation between the suburban voter and this rural voter. 
Got it. Can I call it the hope gap? The hope gap that you just identified as being sort of centrist and Democrat leaning versus those with less hope that they'll be able to pass on an America that was as good to them, uh, as, as good to their children as it has been to them. Does that also correlate to education levels? Completely. There's a, a complete correlation. And that's important because you said two very important things. The first is, and I like the way you call it a hope gap, because what happens when you lose hope, yeah. decline is, when you view yourself and the community and your, your people, if you will, your tribe is in decline, we know from thousands of years of history when societies feel that way or they perceive that in real, you know, in, in truth or fiction, they start to become both self-destructive mm-hmm. and destructive to the society generally. And let me say a little bit more about that because it's important. Yeah. This demographic, the non-college educated white voter in America, is the only demographic in the entire Western world, not just America, but the entire Western world, that is exhibiting these high rates of suicide, high rates of, of opioid addiction, high rates of suicide that are increasing, high rates of obesity, high rates of all of these things that are effectively self-destructive behavior. And they are signs that are not only inwardly afflicting these people as they perceive their own decline, but they are now taking it out on institutions and, their, and society generally. It's why you are starting to see uh, mass shootings are overwhelmingly young white men, right? The militia men are overwhelmingly young white men or white men generally. They, they, these, the, the, the fact that the Republican, modern Republican Party is not concerned about the tearing down of our social norms or our, our, our constitution. They turn a blind eye to the, the violation of, of the corruption that's clear and evident in our government and, and embodied in the Trump administration. It all makes sense when you realize that these people believe that America itself has failed them. And that there are other people to blame for that. So what do I care if having these institutions led me to, to a loss of hope and despair and a bad future for my children anyway? It's probably an America not worth saving. And this is what we mean when we when we say white grievance politics, which Stuart Stevens has mentioned and 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 uh, and Steve Schmidt has mentioned on this podcast. This is this is what we mean when we when we say this is a this is a campaign based on white grievance. Is that right? Yeah, and it's not only a campaign; it's the entire party. Right. Uh, there are obviously a handful of exceptions. Yeah, you're, sure. You're, you and I included, but <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that that is the separation point, but. So what does that mean? Well, you, you, you characterized it well. There's the hope gap, which is closely correlates to college education and college degrees. And it's why Joe Biden has a bigger opportunity uh, to bring this back into kind of, I wouldn't say a blue wall. I think Pennsylvania will probably be contestable for a while for the next few election cycles because those collared counties, those four counties surrounding the Philadelphia suburbs are white college educated, um, voters where Biden is actually winning by a plus nine factor in, in Pennsylvania, that with a very robust turnout amongst African-American voters in Philadelphia and in uh, Pittsburgh communities and, and you know, other surrounding areas, is, will, should be enough, if the polling is consistent, to have that, the state move back into the Democrats' column. Now, if the weighting is wrong the way it was in 2016 or we miss something, it's why we contrast Pennsylvania with the Sunbelt states who are not experiencing that demographic that is undergoing this profound sense of loss and decline. It's a very highly regional 
demographic. It's very much in the deep south, up the Rust Belt. It peers out a little bit into some of the mountain states, um, and then it goes out into Pennsylvania, but it also pops up in strange places like New Hampshire or Maine, and then out west in Nevada. Rural whites, non-college educated, who do not feel as hopeful for America and that America itself is fundamentally changing economically and demographically, and both are just as important because yeah, it is. Because it is. Right. And they don't feel a future in that America, and the, the response is, if I can't have it, then nobody can have it. Okay, so to bring this back to the math, which is what we're here for on the <laughs> State of the Vote episode. No, 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 yeah. this, is, this is helpful because uh, you know we, we wouldn't have this part of the conversation if it didn't actually inform the way we're looking at votes coming in right now, because it does. So in Pennsylvania, there are over 800,000 more requests for absentee ballots from Democrats than from Republicans right now. Over 200,000 of these requests came from people who did not vote in 2016. So given what we've just discussed, how important will those voters be in a state that Trump won by less than 50,000 votes? And then also, you know, I, I should ask you one question at a time here, but from a political standpoint, what does an absentee ballot voting lead like this mean for how campaigns can spend money? Great questions. So if you look at the party breakdown in Pennsylvania, it's about 38% Republican, 38. Democrat, it's 48%. And then, uh, you know, the other 14% are either minor parties or, or decline, what we call decline of states in California or unaffiliated or, or people who just don't want to be part of a, of a party. So there's, there's, a, it, there's a mathematical advantage to the, um, Demo- that the Democrats enjoy. But as I was trying to explain, a lot of Democrats in the T are, um, are very conservative and moved towards Trump and, again, have been moving more conservative toward more conservative politics based on the characteristics we talked about um, for uh, of the past few election cycles. Uh, a lot of union Democrats. We used to call them Reagan Democrats, right? right Back when, right, right. when you and I were younger, right. and that was a, we were we were proud of that as Republicans. We were proud that we talked to Democrats. Now you're not even right. allowed to, to you know live in the same neighborhood. Yeah, as remember Democrats. just to, to to go down a rabbit hole for a minute. Remember yeah. when it was actually aspirational to do something yeah. on a bipartisan basis? Yeah, yeah. It was like that was a cool thing. It's like, well, right. we're reading Democrats with our ideas. Right. Now yeah. it's like, man, you talk to a, a, a Democrat and you're you're a rhino and you need right. to be run out of the party. Yeah. So again, probably different podcasts, but that's different. That's podcasts. what's happening, right? These were the folks. These were folks that were, you know, conservative values, blue collar, working men and women, built things with their hands, involved in the energy industry. By all, all other estimations, they're, they're, they're union members, but they're very Republican in, in characteristic and values. They have been moving towards the right a little bit. The free trade stuff is very important there. Fracking issues are very important in this part of the country. So um, the, 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 the um, mathematical advantage of, of Democrats really only comes into play in high turnout elections because Democrats generally have a much lower propensity to vote. It's because Democrats tend to, have, to be um, more people of color, lower income, and younger voters. And those voters, they kind of vote, I say, like they're World Cup voters. They show up once every four years to vote, and it's, the, it's during a presidential general election. November is when they're going to show up. The bursts of, of excitement and energy that we see manifesting in ballot requests is happening in every state where it's opening up. I think we we're talking a little bit about Virginia before the show started, but it's clearly happening in Pennsylvania. The caution here is this. As we have talked about before, Ron, there's going to be a decided market advantage that we're going to see over the next few weeks 
with a huge rush of absentee and mail-in ballots coming primarily from Democrats and Democratic constituencies. So all of these indicators, these early rush indicators are going to show all this enthusiasm and everyone's going to be saying, oh gosh, the Democrats are, are excited and they're all hopped up. And that's true. But we know that the Republicans are equally enthusiastic, but because of the president's language over the past few years, really, but especially mm-hmm. in the past but couple months. But especially recently. Yeah. yeah, they're going to show up on the day of. So there's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of day of voters or election day voters showing up at the gymnasiums and the you know local libraries to, to cast their vote. That's going to be a disproportionately Republican vote. And so that will begin this process of having to wait where these all of these voters, energy on both sides, massive historic numbers. We're going to have to be patient in the days, especially in Pennsylvania, by the way, uh, because... Every Pennsylvania county has very wide latitude on when they allow early voting and how those votes are both counted and processed. They're very different. They're very divergent. And as a result, um, it's going to be really interesting to see on election night and for the days following where the votes are coming in, with which batches, and how the vote is breaking towards Republicans or Democrats. Uh, you, we can go down the rabbit hole a little bit too much, but we probably will be if things go badly. Um, we will be, you know, watching whatever news network you watch with, you know, fascination and horror, the same way we did in 2000, wondering what a hanging Chad was in Broward County. Uh, that that scenario, uh, my guess is, if that's going to happen in two, 2020, it's probably going to happen in Pennsylvania, simply because of the very diverse uh, ways that voters are allowed to vote in the very different manners and the dramatically expanded use of mail-in ballots is going to create a really uh, interesting scenario in Pennsylvania specifically if the country's uh, hopes one way or the other hinge on the Keystone State. Yeah. Okay, Mike, before we go, ballots have only been out in a hand in a couple of states uh, for a week or two at the most at this point. So I while we don't really know a lot yet, are there any trends across the board in these states that that are significant? that are instructive, that, that are worth highlighting for our listeners right now until our next State of the Vote episode next week? Yes. Uh, there is clearly a strong, deep, passionate interest in this election, and it's showing up in different ways. In North Carolina, it's showing up in a record number of ballots being requested uh, uh, by a very significant factor amongst Democrats. Um, a factor of a huge, huge increase of, of democratic ballot requests. Um, I want to read a little bit into that, but not too much into that because again, we know that Democrats are disproportionately going to be requesting ballots. It is very, very early, but it is a good sign. You would certainly rather have that than low or no interest. Um, we have heard reports earlier that there are uh, early voting began in Virginia, and there are some lines already today, folks. Remember, uh, 350 people deep in Virginia, uh, which really isn't a battleground state. So I think there's a lot of uh, pent-up interest and passion. A lot of people have been waiting for four years for this election, and they're getting out there and they're voting in whichever manner or way that they can. I expect that there will probably be some tapering off. You can hold me to that because if I'm wrong, we're probably going to see even much more explosive turnout numbers than we ever anticipated. And I think that that would be a good thing. Um, and I would like to say that there's a, a historical track record for this, but there really is not. I don't think that anybody can ever say that on the first day of early voting in Virginia, there were people waiting 350 people deep to cast a ballot. That's just that's just unheard of. 
So um, it does it does remind voters if you do have an early voting state, vote early because the longer you wait, the greater the likelihood of very impacted lines, especially if there's a you know COVID outbreak. Um, or there's a monkey business, not that we're expecting, you know, every state to deal with that. Just vote early. Give yourself time. You've got a month in most places. Plan, have a plan to vote and vote as early as you possibly can, please. It just makes it easier for the people behind you to vote too. And um, frankly, I think it's, it's kind of part of our civic obligation. The easier we can make it vote for others, um, use that, especially as an informed voter. And you probably are if you're listening to this podcast. Make it a little bit easier for the person, you know, pay it forward. Let, let, let Make it easier for those that are less informed, uh, less aware to vote. And um, I think that's just something as a good citizen we can do in a real way to, to help the process move along. Yeah. Just to summarize for our listeners, I think the takeaway for right now for this week is that the intensity that we're seeing is exactly what we would hope to see for the outcome that we're working towards at this point. So there's nothing surprising. This is all good news and... We'll know more next week. That's exactly right. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show and breaking this down for us today. Ron, it's always great to be with you. I hope I add a little bit of clarity. I know I get a little bit long-winded, but I love our conversations. And if I can be of help, you know where I'm at. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you again next week. And thanks to everyone at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.